Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Ellen Trackman here with Jennifer White. Hi, Jen. I'm here barely. Uh, you, you you led before this with terror for me. Yes. Uh, you said, said, we're going to play a game. It's going to be super fun. I'm not going to tell you what it is. It's going to be a quiz, even though you're really tired. Okay. And I was like, and I'm so tired, I'm not functional. So it's going to be super this. fun. I'm not worried. Okay. You got here this. we go. You will win. I will buy you a Starbucks coffee next time I see you in person. Yeah. <laughs> if you win, otherwise you owe me. How's that? <laughs> Ooh. All right. Stakes. Okay. Um, so we know many celebrities choose to be open about their infertility journeys, and some don't, and we respect that as well. But can you name in I'm gonna give you a timer? Hold on. Oh. The timer. Okay. I'm gonna give you 20 seconds to name six. Five, six, let's do, let's do six, six celebrities that used surrogacy. Use a surrogate to have a child. Okay, Ooh. on your mark. Get set, go. Okay, uh, Anderson Cooper, Cristiano One. Ronaldo, Two. Sarah Jessica Parker, Three. Nick Jonas. Four. You can't just do his uh, wife to get another point. No, that's not. Eight seconds. Fair. Um... Oh God, uh, I'm gonna die. Oh, uh, the Baldwins, uh, Kim Kardashian. Um, Three seconds. Ooh, uh, Elon uh, Musk. The Baldwins. Uh, oh yeah, that's right. This is that's good. The Baldwins and Kim Kardashian. You got six. Did I get it? Yeah, you got it. Woo-hoo! I mean, it was close. I may have given you an extra second there. I think oh. I think you made it. Um, right. Okay, I will buy you coffee. But good <gasps> work. You know, we can play along at home. But anyway, the point is that there are. Lots of celebrities who do speak openly and share their stories. Um, sometimes probably not because they want to, just because prying eyes are kind of rude, right? But right. others do choose to openly speak about it and form a platform to let other people know that um, real people go through this, celebrities go through this, and that there is support and help out there. And I was so excited to get a celebrity. <laughs> to I know. And... To be so open and eloquent and kind and sharing all that she's been through. Yay, here we go. Welcome, Liliana Vasquez, to the podcast. We are so excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. This is going to be so much fun. I'm excited. And I have to say, I'm sure everyone knows you from E! News or Pop of the Morning, but In case there are a few listeners out there who only get their source of media or entertainment from this podcast, do you want to share a little bit about your career favorites or highlights and what you're up to now? Yeah, absolutely. So um, yeah, so most people, I think, associate me with either the Today Show or E! News, which is where I spent the bulk of of the last 10 years. Um, I was a contributor on the Today Show for seven years, where I really focused on Um, telling, you know, fashion stories, beauty, women's interest stories, um, and obviously covering a ton of entertainment moments, whether that was the Golden Globes or the Oscars. Um, And then, you know, that role was 
something that I fought so hard to get. Um, And then as I kind of like saw my runway start to dwindle there, and I really wanted to focus more on entertainment news, um, I ended up going over to E! News. And I was the first uh, Latinx host in the show's 30-year history. Um, And I got to thank you. And I got to host and launch E! News out of New York for the first time in the show's history, which was super meaningful to me because I always thought, you know, like, LA is awesome, but like New York, New York is where you break news. And if we're truly an entertainment news show, we should be based in New York City. Um, and they agreed. Um, so yeah, those are kind of the two big TV roles I have. But you know, it all started for me with a blog back in yeah. 2008, which is crazy because now blogging is not even blogging anymore. Now it's like <laughs> influencing. I, I'm like, is it an I, content who knows? creator? content creator. But back when I started, I, everyone was a blogger. I started back in like Brian boy days um, and like cupcakes and cashmere days when people didn't even really know what a blog was. They would be like, well, what is that? And they're like, so it's like an internet website where you talk about fashion. And I was like, exactly. (laughs) And they'd be like, does anyone read it? And I'd be like, actually, thousands of people read it. Um, But, you know, back then you really had to explain what a blog actually was and kind of justify that it was a real career and a real way Mm -hmm. for people to connect and communicate and, and share things that they loved. And now it's so commonplace. It's just it's funny to have been there from the beginning. Right. And did your family or friends like, oh, do you have a real job? What is that? Yeah. Yes, for sure. I mean, it was definitely like, I think people thought blog, like I had a blog. They're like, is that like a condition? Like, what is that? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's my skin. I use lotion. It's fine. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's fine. I promise it's treatable. There's a pill for it. Um, No, it's, you know, back then, I was already kind of doing, I guess, like what you now would call like kind of full-time freelancing. Like I was always ahead of the curve in that sense, because I never felt like I had a traditional career trajectory. So I was always trying to do the things that I was really excited and passionate for, even if that meant that I didn't have like health benefits, or even if it meant that I didn't know where my next paycheck was coming from. And I was the kind of person that's always been really okay with that risk. Um, I come from two very entrepreneurial parents that are also not very risk averse, like they're into they're into it, they can handle it. And so I was raised by two parents that kind of were always looking for the next thing and, and being really creative about how they made ends meet, not because they they yeah. necessarily wanted to, but because, you know, neither one of my parents went to college, like they had to create opportunities for themselves. And so ultimately, you know, when you see that happening around you, you that's kind of, I'm a product of my environment. And so mm-hmm. I was doing that long before people had side hustles. Um, yeah. So yeah, for me, it I was kind it. of like figuring it out, like almost month to month in the beginning. And you what, definitely, it's funny, you cute. Oh, sorry, Ellen, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Well, I was going to say, what are you up to now? What's the next big thing? <laughs> um, a couple of things. So um, I had a baby last July, so he'll be one next month. Yay. And while I was on maternity leave, you know, I think most moms that have gone through this, especially if you, um, you know, were working and working pretty intensely before you had your baby, you know, there was so much, not that there's downtime, but there was so much quiet time for me at night while he was nursing. And, you know, I was like not being able to sleep. And so I kind of put to pen to paper and said, you know, what is the thing that I feel is really missing um, from the creative work that I do on air? And for me, it was producing. It was 
things that, you know, E would let me do a little bit of here and there. The Today Show was great. They really, really let me step into a role as a writer and a producer, but I wasn't doing it so much at E. And I found myself really frustrated by the fact that they kind of relegated me to just being talent. And I'm like, well, I get that a lot of talent is just talent, but you have somebody here who actually really thrives on the challenges of production and being a producer. And I, I consider myself a really good writer. And I wasn't getting that at work. So I thought, well, I'm going to create it for myself. You know, I have a ton of clients in the branded space that we're all looking for great video and content. And we're looking to, you know, spend their dollars with female led production houses. And I thought, well, if I have these clients already, like, why not just pitch them? So I started a production company with one of my very, very good friends. She's one of my very first producers in daytime television. She is like a TV genius. And we launched our production company called Curated while I was on maternity leave. And I ended up really committing and doubling down on the fact that like, I want to obviously still be in front of the camera, but I also want to use my production company to tell the stories that I don't think get told often enough. Um, and whether that's awesome. through a brand lens or through a docu-series, um, that's really what I'm focused on right now. I love that. And speaking of stories that aren't often told enough, you personally went through this journey, as we like to say, to become the the parent of a one-year-old now. And my understanding is that you didn't share all of that while you're going through it, but now are opening up. Can you tell us about that decision to go public with your story? Yes. And I'm going to preface this by not sharing my journey was probably one of my most regrettable decisions in my life. Like when wow. I look back on it, I will look back at those five or six years and always really be angry at myself. But that being said, um, I needed to go through that, right? Like I needed to experience that on my own so that I would never suffer in shame or silence again for anything that I was going through or anything that my family was going through or anything that I was going through in my relationship. Um, but yeah, you know, I always knew that Patrick and I would have kids. Um, I just didn't know when that time would come. And I certainly was in no rush. Um, I was working really hard and I was really excited about the opportunities in front of me. I was, you know, on the Today Show, I was co-hosting a show with Meredith Vieira. And at the time I kind of just was like, yeah, family will come one day, but it's certainly not a priority. You know, I always say I was never one of those women that like had picked out her child's name like before college. Um, I loved kids and I certainly loved my nieces and nephews. And, you know, like I, I loved my friends' children's, but I wasn't focused on having a baby. And so when I was 35, I was, you know, working on two major daytime network shows. And I went to my like yearly doctor's appointment and my gynecologist, who's super smart and such like an advocate for women making really smart choices about reproductive health, asked me, you know, hey, you know, I know you're super busy, but like, have you thought about having a family? And like, there's no rush. Like she wasn't judging me. She was just saying, hey, there's no rush here. But have you thought about it? And I said, yeah, I have. And she's like, well, you know what? We're doing blood work today anyway. Let's just run this like super simple test. It just gives me like a tiny peek into like where you are in terms of egg quali uh, quantity, not quality. And I said, okay, sure, whatever. It's just like one other blood test. She's yeah. like, yeah, it's no big deal. And I'm sure you're fine. And I immediately, when she said, I'm sure you're fine. I remember like having this moment where I thought, well, obviously I'm fine. Like I'm healthy. <laughs> I'm young. <laughs> My mom never had any issues having a baby. My cousins have never had like all of these like falsehoods around fertility that actually have nothing to do with your fertility. And, right. you know, I was like checking the things like I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't do drugs. Like I'm, of course I'm going to be fine. But if you want to do the test, fine. 
So we did the test. And of course she called me like the next day. And you know, when your doctor calls, it's always bad news. Cause like, no, news is good news. <laughs> they never actually call. Yeah. <laughs> they, they literally never call. And she actually called me like from her personal cell phone. So I was like, and we have a great relationship. Like I always say that like all of my physicians are partners in my health, not just doctors. Um, and so we had a great relationship. So I had her cell phone. She had my cell phone. She called me and she called me with terrible results. Um, basically my AMH level, which is the test that she performed. It's uh, AMH is short for anti-malarian hormone. Um, my levels came back almost undetectable. And what that wow. meant was that as you know, women age, their AMH declines. And as women start menopause or premenopausal or go into menopause, their levels are like below 0.1, right? Well, mine was 0.02. So wow. <laughs> it was two tons of 0.1. Um, and that is on par with somebody who is about to start menopause. And I didn't have any of those symptoms. I was having regular periods. And so she was just really confused. So she's like, it's clearly a lab error. <laughs> um, why don't you come in and we'll repeat the test. So we repeated the test and the test was right. Um, and so wow. I went straight from her office to seeing like one of the best IVF doctors here in New York because my levels were so low. And, you know, that immediately started, you know, a full panel of tests because AMH is just one test. And I always say that because like, just because you get a low AMH test does not mean that you're going to have fertility problems, but it is a reason to start doing the other test and to have, and to see a specialist and get a full panel done and to have, you know, an uh, an, an ultrasound done to make sure that, you know, things are okay. And in my situation, things just didn't look great. And it was funny because it really took the idea of motherhood being taken away from me to make me realize how badly I actually wanted it. And you weren't even trying when all no. of this came out. No. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, when you're trying and it's not happening, you know, doctors are like, oh, you know, you need to be trying actively for six months or nine months or a year. I mean, my levels were so low that the doctor was basically like, listen, if you want to have a child, like if you want to carry a baby, if you want to have your own baby, like you really need to go straight into IVF. And wow. so I did see a doctor and I said, listen, can we try IVF next? Can we try IUI first? Like, and she's like, totally. And that was important too, because I just didn't believe it. I was like in complete shock that I, at 35, I mean, 35, a is not that old. Like, I hate right. this idea that like, it's so old and it's not old. It's not old in life. But when you understand how biology works and the fact that women are born with all of the eggs that we're going to have for the rest of our life, 35 isn't that young. And that's how I'm choosing to frame it. And that's how I and framed it. And it's advanced maternal age. <laughs> it is. It is advanced terminology. maternal age. I hate that. It, terminology. I hate that term. I know. I hate it. <laughs> geriatric. I know. I was a geriatric pregnancy. I hate those words. But, you know, it's a fact that, you know, if you're born with about 2 million eggs, when you come onto this earth, by the time you're in your 30s, you start to see a very rapid decline in the quantity of eggs. Now, at the end of the day, we all know you only need one egg to have one baby, right? It just takes one. So you might have 10 eggs left, but if you've got one good one in there, that's your baby. And I did choose to focus on that, but it was going to be really hard. I always said to my husband, it's like a gumball machine and there's like that one gold gumball, right? It's like, we had to get to our one gold gumball. We had to turn <laughs> that. Sorry, I love that analogy. I've never heard that one before. I love it. It's, <laughs> it's the best way. Like I knew it, I knew he was in there. 
I just, or she, you know, I just had to keep turning and putting quarters in. And unfortunately those quarters were more like thousands and thousands of dollars <laughs> to right. turn it. And shots um, and pain and suffering. Yes, of course. I don't want to minimize that, but that's how I visualized it every time I was going through this process. I'm like, you know, there's lots of gumballs in there, but I need that one gold gumball that's like buried deep in this toy machine. Um, but yeah, it took, you know, tons of, of, of failed cycles um, and canceled IVF cycles. And, you know, one thing that's important for me to also note is when we talk about IVF, you know, I connected IVF with having a baby. In my head, it was like, oh, cool, we'll just do IVF and then I'll have a healthy baby. When I realize now, and obviously having gone through this so many times, that IVF is simply a tool, right? It is not a solution to infertility. Um, and that's important to note because there is no guarantee with IVF. Um, and so you could do it 10 times, 12 times, 20 times and still not end up pregnant, or you could end up pregnant and miscarry. Like there's no guarantee that you're going to have a healthy baby with IVF. Like you just have to roll the dice. And that is what it is. It is a tool to try and get you pregnant, but it's certainly not the only tool and it's not a foolproof solution. And I say that because so many couples, I think, step into this with such high hopes and, and, and all of these, like I said, all these myths exist about what IVF is and what it truly isn't. And so I always say, you have to think of IVF as a tool, not a solution. And it's terrifying because the cost mm-hmm. can be 15 to 30,000 around. It's astronomical. For, for that roll of the dice, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, you know, when you're going through it, like, you know, I always say I stepped into this situation with so much privilege to be able to access the kind of doctors that I had to be able to access the protocols and the drugs and the treatments and to be able to have this and not only be able to do it once or twice, but to be able to do it four, five, six, seven times. That is not often the case. And that's what's so heartbreaking about this. But the silver lining to that is, and and I say this because it was what really changed this. I think what really changed my success with IVF is that I shifted my focus from, oh, I really want to be pregnant, right? I need to get Mm -hmm. pregnant. I'm going to get pregnant. I had to surrender that idea to, no, no, no. I want to be a parent. Like Patrick and I want to be a family. And that is a very different outcome than focusing on pregnancy. Because to us, it didn't matter how we got there. Like we had already started exploring adoption. We had looked into donor. We had looked into surrogacy. We opened our hearts to every option on the planet because the goal was never to be pregnant. But it took me like five years to come to terms with that. That had never been the goal. The goal was to be a mom and to be a family. And how you got there to us didn't matter. And I know that it does matter to some families and I'm not taking that away. But for us, it didn't matter. We just wanted a baby, you know? Mm. And for me, that shift was so powerful. And you were in a unique position that you were just such in the public eye during all Mm -hmm. of this. How did you handle... You know, uh, being on not hormones, well. doing injections, but I, also having like, to be in front of a camera. A million, <laughs> yeah, hormones and a million appointments, quite honestly. Um, you know, I, God, we, I, it, to me, it was funny. It was like having to go, and I would say like all of my fellow like IVF warriors, I will say that like the blow of like, 
you know, becoming a mom and having to manage being a mom and having to, you know, go back to work. I think it's a little bit easier because you're kind of managing an insane amount of commitments and schedules and, 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 you know, rules and changes in your life before you even become a mom. Like, you know, there's so much sacrifice that happens when you're going through IVF. I always say like IVF is the greatest thief because it takes away all of the normalcy of real life. Mm. And babies do that in a way too. They're not thieves, they're joy, but they do take away a lot of the things that you love. Um, and you have to kind of reprogram your life around them. And, you know, anyone that's gone through IVF knows you have to completely reprogram your life around IVF. And so I was uh, an incredible multitasker and I learned to really just like do with a lot, with a lot less sleep. And, you know, in terms of showing up on television, um, you know, TV, even though I'm not an actress, is still very much a performance, right? Like you show up in a studio, you go through hair and makeup and, and you transform into this version of yourself. Like, listen, the girl that showed up to, you know, 6 a.m. blood draws is not the same girl that showed up to be live with Kathy and Hoda. Um, there's a transformation that has to happen. And there's also a separation of, of that world from my professional world. And I think I was able to really kind of create this safe space for myself that almost felt like an escape from IVF. And so I looked forward to it because for that one hour that I was on TV, I didn't have to think about the reality of what I was going through. Um, so I looked at it almost kind of like almost looked forward to it because I could escape what, how painful every other Is, moment of my day was. Yeah. Did that flavor some of why you didn't speak about it publicly? Because then it yeah. would have left, you know, left yeah, that it for you, it taken, kept it private. Yes. Yes. And to be, I mean, I, I'm being, I've always been very honest with this. Um, I didn't want people to see me on television and be like, oh, like, I feel so bad. Her and her husband are trying to have a baby and they can't. Like, I, I didn't want to feel like people were pitying me. Um, sure. And I didn't want to appear like, I didn't, I was ashamed of that I couldn't get pregnant. And I didn't want to bring any of that to television. Like TV was my safe space. My job was my safe space. It was an escape. And I wanted to protect that. And I just didn't want that to always be what people looked at me and thought. Like I wanted people to look at me and be like, wow, like she's such a great storyteller. And she's so fun to spend time with on TV. And it's like having a, a best friend that's telling me what to wear. Like I wanted people to see me as that, not see me as, oh, Liliana is having trouble getting pregnant. And that's so sad. And like, I wish, you know, and now I understand that that is not how people look at you. That's not sure. what people would have said, yeah. but I didn't know that at the time. And, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, And that's what I say about like, this was a terrible decision that I made six years ago and I would never repeat it, but that was my motivation. And I share it because I think there's a lot of reasons that people choose not to publicly share what they're going through. And for me, like I didn't share it because I wanted to protect my headspace around something that did give me joy, which was my job. Um, and I just, what about your I, family I, though, too? Oh, so what oh, about your yeah. family? So obviously, you know, like there's a different, you have a lot of onion layers that, that some people don't have. Right. Cause then you have yes. like the, the public persona. And then of course we all, yes. you know, we tend to pull back to our, our family. How about them? What, what kind of support uh, did you, did you, you gain or ask for there? So that was also really hard because I am half Mexican and half Puerto Rican and IVF, along with many other conversations like miscarriage and sex, are not conversations that are traditionally had in our homes. Um, you know, people don't talk about it because it's hard to talk about. And I know 
in my family, we just don't talk about hard things. We don't have hard conversations. We tend to avoid them. Um, and that's bad. And that's like creates a lot of generational trauma that, you know, you then have are left to unpack. Um, but IVF is certainly not something that was a topic of conversation in my family. It's not something that my cousins had talked about. It's not something my mom had talked about. And there was just really a lack of knowledge and awareness. And my only conversation around IVF wasn't even a conversation. It was a statement that my grandmother had made. She's passed since. But I remember we were sitting in her living room watching um, a news show called Primer Impacto. And it's like a magazine evening news show. And they were talking about somebody who had gone through IVF. And I remember my grandmother making a statement and almost like changing the channel because her response to that story was like, who do they think they are? God. Oh, and, oh. and that stuck with me in the moment. And I never said anything. Like I never, ever even had the conversation with her and, and she passed before I even started going through this. But even when I was going through that always kind of stuck in my head. And I'm like, well, if my grandmother thought that, like, would my aunts think that? And worse, would my mom think that? And so I kept it super private. My mom knew and my mom was wonderful when I told her what I was going through. But she was also really honest and said, listen, I don't know anything about this. And you've got enough on your plate. And I know you're trying to educate yourself and Patrick, like, I'm going to be here to support you because you're my daughter and I love you mm -hmm. unconditionally. And I'm heartbroken for you. But like, I'm not going to pretend to understand this, Liliana. And I'm not going to pretend to like know what's going on. But like, I will be here for you every second of every day. But like, please don't think that I know anything about this because I know nothing. Um, and I said, that's okay. That's and I did educate. And honest response. I, and I, I love it. And I thought that that, and it really meant so much to me because she wasn't pretending, right? And she also didn't want to put the burden of educating her on me because I already was going through that. And I thought that was so like generous. And it was like all I needed her to say. That was it. And she did. She was so wonderful. She was here for my retrieval. She was here for like the shot. You know, she was such a, a key part in all of this. And she actually was the one that like made me like sit after like a transfer because I was like getting on planes to go to LA the next day. And finally she was like, enough, like I'm coming, like I'm bringing you home from your retrieval and I'm going to like lock you in your apartment. <laughs> She's like, you need to like really honor this. And like, if you're going to have a baby, like your life is going to slow down. And if you can't slow it down to try and get pregnant, then are you going to be able to slow it down when you have this baby? Um, and she was right. I wasn't willing to slow it down. And it wasn't until, you know, COVID that really forced the whole world mm -hmm. to slow down that this finally worked for me. Yeah. What would you say was the hardest part of that whole journey to try to get to parenthood? Um, I think trying to go through it alone. You know, I think that my husband is not my therapist and my husband is not my girlfriend. My husband is not family and trying to only have just such a few number of people that you could really talk to about this just made the whole journey felt so isolated. Um, and it shouldn't be, there's an incredible, beautiful community of, of women that have gone through this and are there to support you and provide support, whether you know them or whether you meet them online. And so I think that was the hardest part. And I also think just feeling like a failure. I think when you're such a type A person, you're used to success. And I'm so like results oriented. Um, it really threw me for a loop emotionally. I just had never really gone through something that I had failed at so miserably so many times. Um, and that just like did a number on me. Like it started to make me think like, well, like, am I going to fail at other things? Like it really got in my head. Mm. And we frequently on this podcast talk about resources and support organizations like Resolve and books that are great. Mm -hmm. Did you find any that resonated with you personally? Um, 
Not really. Um, I would try, you know, it's funny. I would, I would like go on different like chat boards, um, that my doctor's office had like recommended, but I felt like such an imposter because these women were so openly sharing their journey. And I felt like I was going to have to like use a different, I just felt like almost like I was deceiving them and I wanted to honor their vulnerability and their honesty. And it didn't feel right to me. Um, to be part of that community, but then also Just like, because hi. you weren't also yes. sharing. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's like, it wasn't fair. You know, it's like, if it, I, I felt like if they're Lurking. being so honest and they're being so generous with, with their stories and their experiences, then like, I didn't really have the right to take from them when I wasn't willing to give to them. Sure. And when you finally got pregnant, mm-hmm. how did you feel? Were you terrified? Were terrified. you elated? Oh. I mean, okay, first I, first I was in sh- obviously shocked because, you know, when all you want to hear for six years is like you're pregnant and then someone says it. I remember I was like walking around my room saying the words I'm pregnant, like in all different tones because like, you know, I, I was oh my God. like, we sound like the was- same person. Like when I found out, I told the cat and I had to keep telling the cat over and over yes. again. The cat was the only yes. person home. <laughs> That's exactly right. And like, you know, I, I read voiceover all the time. Like I use my voice in different ways. So I was like trying out all my different voices. I was like, well, will I believe it if I say it this way? Like I'm pregnant. Like, <laughs> like I was like recalling all of my voice training to say those two words so many different ways. Cause I just couldn't actually like process those two words together. Like it took me like an hour. And I was just like walking around because I was by myself. My husband was like coming in from New York city and I was in Montauk alone and there was nobody to tell. Like, and I was like, I'm pregnant. I'm pre-. And then I kept asking it as a question. I'm like, no, no, stop asking. It's not a question. It's a fact. Um, so I was in complete, like just suspended disbelief. And then once that wore off, then of course, like I think a lot of women that have struggled to get pregnant, you go into this like terrible fear mode and like really heightened levels of anxiety, which then switched to, well, is today the last day I'm going to be pregnant? And I was like, I have to ask, which voice did you use to tell your husband that you're like, I'm (laughs) I think the screaming voice. Ah. And he's like, what? And like, I'm already naturally really loud. Uh, I was like, babe. And he's like, Liliana, what? You're so loud. I was like, we're pregnant. And he was like, what? wait, what did you say? He's like, I'm in Penn Station. It's really loud. What did you just say? And I was like screaming. And he's like, okay, 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 okay. I hear you. How do you know? He's like, did you take a pregnancy test? Because I'm not, I'm going to hang up if you took a pregnancy test. (laughs) Because we had agreed that I was not going to take pregnancy tests this time because, you know, they're just, there's, that's not a smart way to get information when you've gone through this. Like at this point we were like, committed to really only going in doing the beta and like not cheating and like taking a pregnancy test and getting our hopes up and then having a negative pregnancy test at the doctor with blood work. So we had agreed to not do that. And so he was angry, I think, because he thought that like I had taken a pregnancy test, which is not what happened at all. I had, um, my doctor had kind of like coerced me to go in and take like a random blood test. But what he had done is he had run the test early and was hoping that if I had a high enough level, he would feel confident in telling me that I was pregnant and my levels were like through the roof. He almost was like, at one point he was kind of like, maybe you're having twins. And I was like, what? And he's like, your levels are just so high. I never was pregnant with twins, but you know, at certain, at, at a certain number, like you're starting to see two that that means there's two babies in there. Um, but no, we confirmed it was just one, but I, I heard it from my doctor first and then shared it with my husband. And how was the pregnancy? Um, 
so easy. Um, I, I, I've kind of always said that like God did not push, put me through six years of hell to give me a difficult pregnancy. And he gave me like the easiest, yeah, just the easiest, smoothest like ride. And I say that like physically, the emotional Mm -hmm. part of it was very different, but physically like easiest pregnancy I could have ever imagined. Like I never had morning sickness. I think I had like two headaches randomly. Um, I like didn't really crave anything weird. Like I craved oranges, but like vitamin C is good for you anyway. Like didn't, you know, like same thing, like gained a very normal amount of weight. Like my feet got super swollen at the end, like normal pregnancy complaints, but the pregnancy was as easy as pie. And by the way, I was scared shitless of being pregnant at 40 because I was like, oh, everything's going to fall apart. This is going to be so hard. The morning sickness, like gestational diabetes. Like I thought I was just going to be plagued with like every horrible pregnancy thing. And it was so easy. The hardest thing physically was that like Santi kept me up at night because he wanted, like, I felt like he got out. He's like his mom. He has like FOMO at night. He doesn't want to go to sleep. Um, (laughs) And that was the hardest part, but that was it. It was like the easiest pregnancy physically, emotionally was different, but physically very, very simple and very like smooth sailing the whole way through. And tell us about emotionally. I was about to say, Um, you alluded to mental health. (laughs) Yeah. So that was the hard part. Um, I, I feel like when women get pregnant, the world says to them, you're only allowed to feel like a very specific set of emotions. You're allowed to feel happy. You're allowed to feel joy and you're allowed to be excited. And anything that is outside of those emotions is not really quote unquote allowed. And I quickly realized that pregnancy is very complicated emotionally and you feel a million different things all of the time. Like sometimes you feel like, am I even going to be a good mom? Like, am I qualified for this? Like, wait, do I even deserve to be pregnant? Like you feel all kinds of things. You also feel really sad sometimes. Um, And you're also really anxious. And I was feeling all of these things. And I had never really heard pregnant women talk about anxiety during pregnancy. I'd heard about postpartum anxiety and postpartum depression, but I didn't know that you could actually have that while you were pregnant because I didn't feel like women talked about it. And it was almost like super taboo. And I, again, have a great relationship with my OBGYN and I like went in and I was like, listen, I need to talk to somebody because I'm feeling really sad a lot of the time. And I'm feeling kind of depressed and I'm feeling way anxious. And like, I'm crying all the time and this can't be normal. I haven't even had the baby yet. Like, why am I feeling postpartum depression stuff while I'm in the pregnancy? And she's like, because it's actually really common. And I said, wait, what? She was like, yeah. She's like, people just don't talk about it because- exactly what you said. The world doesn't give women permission to feel different things and there's space for all of those feelings. And she's like, I'm going to refer you to one of my favorite doctors. She's like, she specializes in maternal mental health. And I was like, literally dumbfounded. I was like, I'm sorry, there's therapists that specialize in maternal mental health. She was like, of course. And I was like, why did nobody tell me this? And so she referred me to an amazing therapist. Um, and her name's Dr. Salik and she was my angel throughout my entire pregnancy and, and even postpartum. And now like I'm a year out and we still see, we, we talk every Monday at nine o'clock and that never changed. I had my baby on a Sunday. I missed my appointment on a Monday. I mean, sorry, I had my baby on a Monday. I missed my appointment that Monday, obviously, cause I was like literally having a baby removed from me. And then I talked to her the next Monday. She was like one of the first things I did for myself post pregnancy. Wow. All right. So you mentioned having a baby removed from you. Yes. Yes. (laughs) So this is my, my point of 
I need a major education on something that sounds really, really cool. So you underwent what is called a gentle C-section. Tell me, tell us what that is and how you you got there. Okay. So the more like, I guess, like medical kind of textbook way of describing a gentle C-section is what my doctor called a patient-centered approach to a C-section. And that means that you as a mom and as a patient get to have a say-so in the OR. And that's not common because you're in an operating room. And most of the times when you hear of C-sections, you're hearing about emergency C-sections. And in that situation, the only goal is to make sure that mom and baby are both healthy and alive, right? And in that situation, you can't really have a patient-centered approach. But in a situation where you can either have an elective C-section because you as a mom want to choose the kind of birth that you want to have. And by the way, that birth can be an at-home birth. That birth can be with a midwife. That can be an unmedicated birth. That can be an elective C-section. And I say that because for some reason, women are given plenty of choices if you want to deliver vaginally. But the second that you want to have an elective C-section, this like gray cloud hovers over you and people are like, oh my God wait, that's not a choice. Well, it is because if you're supporting women's choices to have births at home with no medical intervention, then you have to support the flip side of that. Right. And I really believe that. And I think that whatever birth a woman chooses is her right. And nobody else gets to have an opinion other than her, her partner and her physician or her midwife. And so if the baby is breech and you are having a scheduled cesarean because baby is breech, then you have the option to ask for a gentle C-section. And that is really bringing a lot of the elements of a traditional vaginal delivery into the, the OR. So for example, like setting the mood in the OR, like, can you guys dim the lights? Like, we know we have lights have to be bright on the OR table, but like around you, could we dim the lights a little bit? Could we play music? right? As long as it's not distracting to the doctors and nurses, could we play music Um, separately? For me, this is not something I did, but could I have a clear sheet instead of a blue or green sheet so that I can actually watch the delivery happen? Um, Was was the hospital receptive to these requests? So, okay. So (laughs) this is really important. So the more that you ask for, the more the hospital is going to push back. But I say that because it's just a pushback. It's not a no. And I think that's part of my personality is to like really never take no for an answer. Um, But also really finding a doctor that supported me because your doctor is the one that is going to be running that operating room, right? So if you have an OBGYN who doesn't support this or doesn't support mom making these kinds of choices, you are not going to be able to get this done in the operating room because hospitals are tough. So your doctor has to be your advocate and also advocate for a gentle cesarean and support the things that you want. So this conversation started like at the beginning, this conversation did not happen the morning that I checked into my hospital in the same way that a lot of women go in for a vaginal delivery and have a birth plan. That birth plan was set long before you ever set foot in a hospital. My gentle C-section plan was set in place from the very beginning with Dr. Rao, who was my OB. Um, and she had done this before and was completely open to it. And there were certain things that I asked for where she said, you know what? I've never done that. I have to talk to the hospital, but I will get back to you next time I see you. Can you tell us what those were? Absolutely. So delayed cord clamping. So, um, I wanted to have the maximum amount of time allowed. Well, she had told me that at UCLA, the max was one minute. 
So baby comes out, they count to 60, and then they clamp. Well, I didn't understand why it was only 60 seconds when most of the data shows that it's really should be a little bit longer, like anywhere from two to three minutes, if you can let that happen. And she was like, okay, let me ask. So what ended up happening? We did two minutes, right? She went and asked, um, skin to skin. Dr. Rao, as does a million C-sections, she actually encourages mom, as long as mom is healthy and safe and baby is healthy and safe, she's like, there is no reason why as soon as baby comes out, baby can't go straight to mom. So you wait, they clamp the cord. A lot of times what happens in C-sections traditionally is they take the baby away from you. They take the baby, they mm -hmm. clean it, they wipe the vernix, they measure the baby, they weigh the baby, they suck the snot out of the baby. None of that is medically necessary. And we know that, right? Because if that's not medically necessary when you deliver vaginally, why is it medically necessary when you have a C-section? Mm -hmm. It's simply because you're in an operating room and it's standard operating procedure, but it's not. It's up for discussion. And so I knew that I wanted skin to skin immediately with the baby. And so Dr. Rao and I agreed that as long as I was okay, and by the way, sometimes mom is not okay because you never know how the epidural is going to impact, right? So a lot of moms when they have a C-section are shaking really violently because they've got their drugs in them and they've never had them before. And they're having a reaction to the anesthesia. Well, if you're shaking, like Dr. Rao was not going to give me the baby until I was like totally fine. And also sometimes she said she's given babies to mom for skin to skin. And mom has said, you know what? I'm feeling a little bit nauseous. I can't have the baby. And then of course the nurse will step in or dad will take the baby and do skin to skin. Right. So there's a ton of choices that you can make. And by the way, it's okay to ask. And it's also okay to change your mind when you're in the room. But in my situation, the delivery was completely smooth. I felt great. And the only thing I wanted that would make me feel better was to have my baby on my chest immediately after the baby came out. And so baby came out. We did two minutes of delayed cord clamping. Baby went to the nurse station, not to have the vernix wiped off, but just to get wrapped in a little blanket. And I asked for a very specific light blanket. And as soon as the baby came to me, I took the blanket off and the baby went right on my chest, skin to skin. And I was actually fully put back together with my baby on my chest. I was wheeled out of oh, wow. the OR with the baby. Love it. Did you and get a clear curtain in your music request? I did not ask for a clear curtain because okay. I personally didn't want the clear curtain. Sure. Um, for me, that was kind of like I had watched videos um, online. And I always say this, like, <laughs> do your homework. <laughs> um, I watched mm. videos online and I was like, you know what? I think blue curtain is fine. Um, <laughs> so, but if it's not fine for you, ask for a clear curtain. It's just, it was important to me. But I think for me, like, again, there's certain people that are candidates for gentle cesareans and not everybody is. But if you're having an elective C-section or the baby's breech and you know you're scheduling a C-section, then why not ask for that? Did you get your music choice? Absolutely. I got my music choice. What did you choose? I also, my husband made a special playlist for Santi and I. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, so I think it's just, it's allowing moms, you know, who are, for me, the reason I didn't have a vaginal delivery is because I just had so much anxiety around the unpredictability of having a baby. I also had talked to a lot of friends who are like more petite in nature that were carrying big babies. And I happened to be carrying a larger baby. And, you know, a lot of them said to me, listen, I went in and I wanted to have this baby vaginally. And then I ended up in an emergency C-section. And for their second, they're like, you know what? 
I don't want to go through that again because I wanted it to feel gentle and calm. And all of that was taken away from me because we went into an emergency operating room and that was really scary. And I don't want that. And so when I talked to them, I thought, what are the things that I want to feel when Santi comes into this world? And what I wanted was peace. And I wanted an environment that was really calm. And how do I do that? Well, as a mom and as a woman, like I have to feel at peace and I have to be calm. And the anxiety that I was feeling around delivering vaginally was not going to allow space for me to feel calm and peace. And so I did what I had to, which was, you know what? If I schedule this and I go into this and I'm super knowledgeable and I'm super aware of what's going to happen to my body and what the, what the, by the way, what the risks are and what the recovery is, then if I can accept all of that, then an elective C-section is the only and right choice for me, for me. Doesn't mean that it's right for everyone else. I love the the advocacy for yourself to doing research and really opening yourself up to options and fighting. Absolutely. You know, and I was, you know, and I was 41 when I gave birth and at 41, like I can make decisions for myself. I've made a lot of them and I was really confident in this decision and it's one of the best things that I did for myself. Amazing. Uh, how is it going juggling <laughs> a one-year-old and all the amazing things that you're doing? I mean, listen, every day I say my son and I do a different dance. It's never the same dance. So we're always learning new steps. <laughs> um, and it's an adventure and, you know, there's really high highs and there's really low lows and he is life's greatest gift. There's no doubt about it. Um, but I am, you know, I struggle with the balance part of it because I don't think it exists. I'm really struggling with, you know, the, the equity of chores and responsibilities in our household with my husband and I, um, neither, I mean, we had a baby at 41, we've lived real lives as a married couple and we had real roles that were defined in our relationship and having a baby, all of that is going to be redefined and we're in the process of redefining what that looks like. And there's a lot of bumps and bruises that happen along the way as you're redefining roles in your household. And that's actually been the hardest part. Like the baby has been easy, but redefining our relationship, redefining who I am, that part has been really hard. I believe it. Um, To wrap up, what advice would you give yourself if you could go back to five, six years ago and say, (laughs) hey, I have to tell you something? (laughs) I would say, I would tell myself to really value vulnerability as my greatest strength and not a weakness. Because I think being vulnerable is so important and essential to being a mother. And I was never really taught how to be vulnerable. Like vulnerability was never modeled in my house because my mom just didn't have, she just didn't have that choice. Like she had to be so strong all the time and she had to work so hard. She just had to be so tough. Um, and I think I saw that and kind of modeled that in my own life. And if anything, you know, going through this alone has taught me that like, there's so much power in vulnerability and it makes me such a better human being, a better mom, a better wife, a better friend. Um, so I would, I would probably give myself that advice. Great advice for all of us. 
Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you coming on and for all that you're out there doing. And um, good luck getting your your husband to do the um, <laughs> equitable amount of your <laughs> oh, uh, We all struggle I, with that one. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm literally counting down the days till July 8th when Fair Play comes out as a documentary because it is going to be mandatory watching in our household. Oh, all right. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you all so much. I appreciate it. All right. Celebrities, we are not them. I'm just saying right now, uh, Ellen and I have bloopered this outro so many times. <laughs> if y'all could hear it, you oh my God. and you'd be like, yeah, you guys, you guys don't have it. You are not celebrities. So we're really I, glad that we have the real pros <laughs> here. Huge thanks to Liana, who is truly a celebrity for a reason, an absolute professional, clearly uh, way out of our league. But we are so thankful that she would come and spend a few minutes telling us her story and sharing with us. Yes. I'm I'm just glad that we can just laugh at ourselves and each other. We're all good. So (laughs) Uh, if any of you want to call and laugh at us, with us, any of those things, uh, give us a call at 303-997-1903. I mean, if y'all don't give us a call at some point here, I'm going to start playing the spam messages that come through to that. I get very excited when I get the voicemails. <laughs> and today I was told that there was a window washing service looking for me. And nice. I really need better, possibly, than a window washing service. That's how desperate we are. Anyway, talk to I us. Know. Give us a call. Talk to us. We love you. Uh, also, go to our Facebook group. We like to interact with people there. Um, but mostly even if you don't interact with us we are appreciative that you're here so thank you to our team to tyler to melissa to amanda to janelle to all of them who make us feel great and at least not sound as klutzy as we truly are (laughs) Um, but most of all thank you to all of you for being with us every week 